Today's episode is brought to you by Majaji Books. Majaji Books is an independent publisher making rain for Southern African women writers and readers. Majaji has some great new titles available. I'm especially excited to get my hands on Bloomer by Anne Schliebusch. Oh, I've just got a copy of it, but I don't know much about it. It's a novel about a 70-year-old woman who reinvents herself when she and her whole retirement community get locked down during COVID. The power of the older woman, that's exactly what we've been talking about. Yes. Which Majaji title are you looking forward to reading? Well, we've also been talking about screenwriting and the process of adapting books for movies and television. So I'm excited to read a book called Cut to the Chase by Janet van Eerden. Janet is an award-winning screenwriter, producer, and lecturer. Cut to the Chase is a step-by-step guide to script and screenwriting for beginners. Ask for both these Majaji titles by name at your favorite bookstore. If they don't have it, they can order for you. Or you can order it directly from www.majajibooks.co.za. That's www.majajibooks.co.za. M-O-D-J-A-J-I-Books.co.za Hello everyone and welcome to The Hidden Lives of Writers. My name's Fiona Snickers and I'm joined by my co-host Gail Schimmel. Gail's been looking a little frazzled today (laughs) Um, and I'm wondering is it the day job or is it your writing week that's been a bit hectic? Fiona, it's everything. It's the day job it's the parenting. And then on top of it, I'm busy doing structural edits with a very, very tight deadline. I don't really understand why the deadline's so tight, but I, I'm, a, I've a, I'm a very compliant writer. If I'm told to do something, I do it. And, and I have these structural edits to do, and I'm fitting them in between everything else. Gail, can you perhaps explain to us what structural edits are? Because I don't think all our listeners will know. Absolutely. So structural edit is when your editors had a first read of your book and they are telling you basically what is wrong with your book. Develop this character more, describe this scene more. Oh my goodness, you've got a major plot hole over here. None of this book makes sense, that type of thing. And it's it's actually a process I love. I love being edited. I love that this world that has been my private world for so long, now somebody else comes into it and they treat it as, as if it's real. They, mm-hmm. they, we have debates about whether this is true to the character or not. And this is someone I've made up and I love it when, when I share that world with someone. But it's also, you open that document mm. and basically Horrifying there's just, moment. Yeah. Red tracking everywhere and you kind of have to close the document and take a deep breath and reopen it. And what I do is I put it on, um, simple markup rather than detailed markup. So I can't actually see everything that's been done and I can't get upset that my comma's been moved and I read it and then I realize that my editor, who is my editor that I've always had, Nicola Raystake, just makes me sound more like me and it's brilliant and I love it. But it's quite hard work and it's got to be done by Wednesday. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> Should we let you go right now to carry on with that? <laughs> <laughs> and Fiona, your writing week? It's been not wildly productive, but I'm following a method that I read about probably online, because that's where I read about everything, called the flashlight method. Tell me which more. It's, it's kind of what I've been doing anyway, but it was just interesting to hear it explained. It's described as 
when you're walking along a pathway at night, okay, you know your beginning point and you know more or less what your end point is, but you can't see the way clearly. But you're holding, I guess in South Africa, we'd call it a torch. In America, they call it a flashlight. <laughs> you're holding a flashlight, which lets you see a few steps ahead. Okay. And you walk along, you can see a few steps ahead, and then there's a bend in the road, and then you can see a few steps after that. So it's a kind of discovery process yeah. of writing. You haven't got everything mapped out every step of the way, and you're not going along utterly clueless either. You're not kind of fumbling mm. in the pitch dark. You've got the flashlight to help you sort of see ahead. You maybe know what's coming in the next page or two, and you maybe know what the final destination is, but you don't have the whole thing mapped so, out. And do you then write, do you make notes of the things that you're seeing with your flashlight? Do you plan ahead? Do you go the next few chapters, this is what I need to get in? In a way, when I start writing for the day, I just start, I just go. I've, I've got an idea of where this piece of writing is going. And then when it's time to stop for the day, I very often, my flashlight has shown me a few steps mm. ahead. So I just make a couple of notes, you know, A dies, B gets married, and C comes down with COVID or whatever, um, just to remind myself that that's where I saw it going. Okay. It does sound like, like you said, it's a thing that one, it sounds a lot like how I write because I know the end and I know where I need to be in the middle. Okay. Um, and okay. then I look ahead a few. So, but interesting, very interesting to hear it named and described. Yeah, it, it's quite intuitive and maybe it wouldn't work for everybody, but at this kind of stage in my career, that's what's working for me. And it was just interesting to see it described. And Fiona, in terms of what you, what you filling up with, what you're absorbing, what, what do you have for us this week? Oh, I am reading such a nice book at the moment. In fact, I kind of want to stop what we're doing now and just get back to it because it is so fascinating. It's called The Golden Couple, and it's got two authors, Greer Hendricks and Sarah Pekanen. I'm not sure if I'm saying that right. It's just such a fascinating premise. It's such a great premise. It's not like one of these high-concept, twisty plots, but it's a brilliant premise. Uh, one of the characters is a psychologist. She's, she's a licensed therapist, or rather she was a licensed therapist. She had her license revoked because she got sick and tired of all the kind of pesky ethics surrounding <laughs> psychologists and how they're meant to conduct themselves. And she decided, screw it, and she's going her own way. And she's offering therapy, especially to couples, where the rules just go out the window. You know, she does her own research. If, if somebody, if the wife mentions, oh, you know, my husband's ex-girlfriend is Nicola and I, I think Nicola still has a crush on him. She, the therapist, will go and meet Nicola at the school gates and have a little chat with her and then bring back to the therapy mm. sessions what she thinks. I think people in therapy often say to the therapist, what should I do? I don't know what to do. And what the therapist is meant to do is kind of lead you. What would you like to do? Yes, <laughs> kind of lead you to your own conclusion of what you want to do. But this therapist is like, you should do this, and then you should do that, and then you should do that, and then you will be better. And it's just, it satisfies something in me. Mm. Like where you can see this terrible situation, and being on the outside, you can see the roadmap out of it, and it's so frustrating that the people aren't getting there by themselves. 
But of course, I can see where this is going. It's going to turn out that those pesky little ethics were actually there for a reason <laughs> and were probably a very good idea. And I, I kind of suspect that this is a bit of a thriller or a suspense novel. So maybe somebody's going to die or somebody's going to get attacked. Please promise me, because I have had a lot of experiences recently where the book starts out like, oh, my God, this is the book I've been waiting for my mm, whole life. Mm. And then suddenly it's like a... a Okay. Please pro- promise right. me, come back to me and tell me, does it keep up the promise of the initial premise or does it fizzle out or become ridiculous or any of the other terrible things that happen to books? I will do that. I'll do that. I might even review it at some point, post it online. But for now, I can't wait to get back to it. <laughs> <laughs> and you, Gail, how, what have you been reading or watching or listening to? So as part of my, I've talked about how I've got a new idea percolating. And as part of it, I've recognized that what I'm loving reading and watching at the moment is quirky things. Mm -hmm. So examples of the sort of books I've loved recently in the last year of um, Impossible by Sarah Lotz, I I loved that moment where that thing happens. And I'm like, oh, my goodness. I loved Midnight Library by Matt Haig. I think that's how you say his surname. Yeah, Um, I wouldn't say that. I liked it, yes. I loved it. I love sliding door moment, alternate reality books. I love them. I love books with quirk. And the thing I've really loved, and it's unusual for me because I watch very little TV, but I somehow stumbled across a program called The Santa Clarita Diet. Right, with Drew Barrymore. With Drew Barrymore looking so beautiful. Mm. And it's about this all-American couple who really are quite a caricature of the all-American couple, big smiles, lovely to each other. But unfortunately, she catches a a kind of virus and becomes a zombie (laughs) um, and starts needing to eat people to survive. (laughs) And it is it just something about it catches my sense of humor and my sense of the ridiculous. I found it. I binge watched everything. I found it the funniest thing I'd ever seen. I, I find the idea of a person, she'll stand there with a packet snacking and it's human toes she's snacking on. <laughs> okay. And where does she get them? <laughs> well, that is. So a lot of the program is about where does she get them? Okay. Um, and how do you be an ethical zombie? Mm-hmm. And they remain this all American couple throughout it. <laughs> and I just, it made me laugh. The last episode of the second season, I actually fell off the couch. I laughed so much. Okay. Um, so I'm loving that. And I'm trying to identify the writer in me is how does one build that quirk mm. into mm. a work? And right. it's hard. I'm, I haven't found the solution yet. But in the meantime, I'd love to hear what other people think about that show. I haven't found anyone who's watched it. And I just loved it. Is it still carrying on or has it been cancelled now? Do you know? I'm not sure, but I really am hoping that it carries on. Um, I'm so hungry for more. Hungry like she's hungry for human toes. <laughs> I was just going to say. <laughs> we are so excited to welcome Sue Nyati into the studio today. You know Sue from her four novels, The Polygamist, The Gold Diggers, uh, a Family Affair, An Angel's Demise, and the rather harrowing collection of personal stories that she curated and edited called When Secrets Become Stories. Hi, Sue, and welcome. What has your writing week been like? Hi, Gail and Fiona. Thank you for having me. Um, my writing week hasn't been too hectic. I'm currently working on a new television series. Ooh. So... 
yeah, so I was just doing an episode summary. Nothing hectic. <laughs> I, I don't even know where to start to unpack that. I don't even know what that means. Um, what is an episode summary? So I'm working on a new limited series. So we're developing the, the, you know, the concept from scratch. So we've been, for the past month, I could say we've been plotting the episodes. So of the series. So it's nine episodes. So we, yeah, so we were finally doing our last episode. So is it enormous fun? I love it. I love it. I mean, it's, you know, I think it's, you know, it's storytelling, but it's a different medium. Um, and I also like that I'm in a writer's room. So you're not working alone. Mm-hmm. You're bouncing off ideas. And I just love the energy that comes with, you know, filmmaking. Very exciting. <laughs> so this isn't based on any of your previous stories or novels or anything like that. You said it's a concept from scratch. No, no, it's, it's, it's something I, you know, it's just totally different. So normally what I do, well, since I left corporate, what I've tried to do was to work in the creative space and, and find jobs that stimulate my creativity. And so that's how I ended up going into television, script writing. And so you work on different shows. And so I, like I'm not, uh, I don't want to write a book every year or every, <laughs> I normally take a gap. So I'm on, I'm, during my gap years, I work in TV and do the TV stuff. So. I think let's take a step back there because I want you to actually tell us your career path story, how you came. I know you were a financial advisor at some point. Analyst, yeah. And financial analyst. Mm -hmm. And the Sue I know and a financial analyst I can't bring together in my head into a coherent (laughs) whole. Tell us how you started, when you knew you wanted to write, because I know you've written from very young, Mm -hmm. and that career path, how you came to be where you are now. So I think I, I always knew I wanted to write from a young age, even as a child, when I, I was the middle child, so, and a girl, so a flank between, you know, two boys. I was, you know, the middle, the middle child and I played alone a lot. But even in my play, I used to make up stories. So I had already had that inclination. I remember my father used to be so concerned. He'd be like, why are you like talking to yourself? <laughs> and I'm like, I'm not talking to myself. I, there are characters around me. I would create these characters and I would act out stories. So already I had, I knew that, you know, this is in me. And when I then, you know, when I started school, started learning how to read and write and, and the vocabulary, when I had the vocabulary, then I started writing actually on paper and pen on, you know, with pen and paper. In what language? In English. Because, you know, that was, you know, I was, that was the first language, you know, I was taught, you know, to be very conversant in. I could speak in Debele, but I couldn't write it at that right. age. So that's how it grew. So it, it, it started off with pictures, cutting out pictures from magazines, writing stories around those pictures. And then until I, you know, I stopped doing the pictures and just writing, you know, just all story. So it was always there. I think for my parents, they never encouraged it because, I mean, they come from a generation where they like, you know, children were professionals. Your kids aspire to be doctors, you know, lawyers, accountants. So being a writer was not something that was like, oh, you know, our child wants to be a writer. Yeah, there's no clear <laughs> career path there for, for, for a writer. And even when I, I later in life, I wanted to go into journalism because a cousin of mine, ventured into it they were like no it's just not it's not the kind of career you want to do it's not a respectable so it was very it was met with a lot of resistance Mm. so that's how I ended up you know being channeled towards finance uh so I you know I did a BCom in finance and later I did a master's in finance and investment a master's in finance finance. yeah so good lord yeah so it's totally different (laughs) (laughs) 
so, there are no characters in fact. No, that's what I'm saying. It was just numbers. But numbers tell a story too. So once you learn to, you know, manipulate them and understand them as well. Um, and read between, you know, the numbers. There's a story there too. And I think be- when I became a financial analyst, that's what it was, looking at financial reports from companies and seeing what the story is behind the numbers. So it's a different kind of thing, but it really did stifle my creative. It's not a, a job that is, you know, lends to creativity, even the writing. Um, I remember I, I had, it's like almost you have to switch off because the biggest gripe they used to have was your writing is too flowery. <laughs> you know, I, I have to, so I have to get into gear all the time, like, you know, and be, you know, very, mm-mm. so I think after, I mean, look, when I, you know, I have a career spanning over 15 years. So I think when I turned on, on my, just before I turned 40, you know, I, I, you know, I had that talk with myself that mm-hmm. look, you have to decide what you want. You know, you, you can't do both. I mean, it was clear I couldn't do both. I'd been trying to do both, juggling, you know, the corporate and the writing. Um, but, you know, it, it, you know, cause you, you obviously something's going to suffer when you try to do two things. And so I made the decision, well, okay, I've, I've done the finance from, you know, for a great part of my life. So let me give the writing a, a, a chance and, you know, give it my all so that if it doesn't work, at least I, I don't have that thing. Oh, I, I don't want to have regrets. So I said, no. So let's, let's see what, how it, what pans out. If it doesn't work, it doesn't work, but at least you tried it, right? And so you quit the day job. I didn't quit, but you know, I, my position was retrenched. So it was when, right. when the offer came, I was like, this is a sign. Yeah, it's a sign. This, this is a universal, whatever you, if you believe in the universe or it's God speaking to me. So I said, okay, you know, I'll take the package. And yeah, and that's how I left corporate. And, but you know, I think in the back of my head, I was still thinking, well, I can always find a job. And it's not like it's not the end, you know, but at least mm. now I have this package. I can write. I don't have pressure like financially trying to and figure out when, you know, mm. when the next paycheck is coming from. So at least I had that peace of mind because I'm also a single parent. So, mm. you know, you always want stability, financial mm. stability. So yeah, so that happened in 2018 when I turned 40, just a month before I turned 40. And yeah, I've never, I've never, you know, I'm still, I'm still here. I'm still writing. I'm still alive. So, so, <laughs> <laughs> so I've, yeah, so I, I'm not, yeah. So now I definitely, I'm not, I'm not going back to corporate. Yeah. There's a lovely scene in the gold diggers when the twins are children and they're playing alone together mm. and they're also talking in those voices and totally wrapped up in their own world. Mm. Um, something that the adults are completely excluded from, from. until their mom walks up to them and they don't know it, but she's making an announcement that's going to change their life forever. Mm. Um, so was that, was that based on watching your own child play or was it based on your memory of being a child, creating your own world, creating your own stories. Yeah, it, it was probably, you know, based from my own, you know, childhood play as someone who used to play a lot on, on my own. Yeah. But it, the, the memory, I mean, it's not in, t- you know, parts of it. So I think it, when we write as writers, we do borrow mm-hmm. from our own, you know, childhood, uh, or, and subconsciously, sometimes you, mm-hmm. you, you do it without even realizing it. Yeah. But we, we do it. Yeah. Um, we yeah. magpies. We just take little <laughs> bits here, there, and everywhere, yes. whatever suits us at the time. Uh, you've mentioned that 
you know, when you were 13, you created a handwritten book with its own cover and it kind of got distributed all over school mm-hmm. and that you were inspired by the Sweet Valley High stories. Yes. Now, children, you grew up in Bulawayo, is yes. that right? Yes. Children in Bulawayo now, mm-hmm. are they still reading Sweet Valley High or have they got stories that reflect their own lives in a different way? I have no idea because I'm so out of touch with, you know, children yeah, in Bulaway, I mean. And I've got a feeling, mm-hmm. and this is just a gut feeling, mm-hmm. that if one read a Sweet Valley High now, it would be so dated <laughs> yeah. and so cringy to borrow from the kids. <laughs> I've got a feeling it would be terrible. Yeah. But I don't think be. they have have something in, in place of it. Because if you think of that young adult market, mm. it's very thin in terms of, I mean, Sweet Valley High was very iconic. Right. You don't have, I've never heard even my, my niece, when she was a teenager, speaking of anything of that sort. Mm-hmm. I don't know what they're reading, honestly. And because I don't have children that age, I'm very out of touch with, you know, what, what books mm-hmm. they're reading. And I haven't, you know, I, when I go home, I'm not, I'm still, I'm very out of touch with the schools. So I, I don't know really what, what, what has filled that void, if anything. I think there's still a void there. I think there's mm-hmm. still a big gap in the market for preteen and teen literature mm-hmm. set in African countries so that, children coming up can kind of see themselves in the characters. And where it's got a bit of the Sweet Valley High books had a naughtiness to them. Like you, there were, there was a, you were, it was a bit like, should you be reading this? Shouldn't you? And, and having quite non-reading children, I see the one way you can tempt them into reading is by implying that the book's unsuitable because there's too much sex. No, 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 you can't read that, my darling. There's far too much sex. Best way to get a child reading. So I want to, I want to go back a little bit because you, you've done the thing that I'm very envious of mm-hmm. having left corporate, mm-hmm. um, even though I love my day job, mm-hmm. but you're a full-time writer. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us what the day of a full-time writer looks like? And, and I want to know, I want to know the things like how many words do you write a day? Where do you write them? How do you structure your day around your writing? Make, I'm sure you will just automatically make me envious, but make me envious. <laughs> no, so I think when you're writing full-time, it, it it's exactly that it's full time so if i have a book project like i'll speak about the angel's demise because that's the last thing i've done but i mean it was waking up getting my son to school mm-hmm. you coming back at at 9 you start it, and it's it's writing from for me it was from 9 to 3 p.m. every day okay solid writing or taking breaks no it's, it's solid it's like you're trying to put in at least what about one to 1,500 to 2,000 words? Okay. Okay. And, and I don't have to be good words, but it's just trying to get that number in. And when you sit down to write those words, mm-hmm. do you know what your plan is for the day? Um, how do you, or, or do you come to the page and have to figure out where you are that day? No, no, no. I do because by then I've already plotted, you know, I've, I've got an outline of how the book should go. So I'm very big on structure. So in terms of, I might not plot chapter by chapter. But if I, I'm writing in parts, I know what must happen, part one, part two, part three. So it's kind of like if you're on chapter 10, you know what's supposed – I kind of have an idea of what's hap- supposed to happen. And so, I follow, yeah. So you're definitely a plotter rather than a pantser. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. So um, one part of your history that I found very interesting mm-hmm. was a time when you were kind of working as a journalist in Zimbabwe. You were doing – um, an advice column 
in a, a newspaper? No, so I wasn't working as a journalist. Um, I was still in very much, I was in corporate finance at the time. Right, right, so, right. And it was that era of Sex and the City. Right. And I loved, I loved the series. And I always... There's a pattern there, <laughs> Sweet Valley High, Sex and the City. <laughs> and I always considered myself like a Carrie Bradshaw, you know. So it was like, in my way, being, I was like trying to find something to be creative about because I'm stuck mm. in this job all, you know, all day. I, I just needed a little outlet where I could actually be doing something creative on the side. And so I started doing that column. It was and called you're... Steaming Off. I used to contribute, yes. And your, your readers were very interactive, weren't they? They used to write to you yes. and suggest that you write about this and yes. ask for help with their problems yes. and so on, weren't yeah. they? Okay. And, and so that really sparked off, you know, you kind of realize that people actually do have a lot of problems and would like you know, people to explore a lot of things that are not spoken about. Yeah. Do you think that's a source for writing ideas, that that insight into people's problems? Not really, because I was writing more about my own problems. <laughs> 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 I mean, it was, I remember the one time um, I, I wrote about, you know, being single on Valentine's Day. Mm-hmm. And you know, I just, but I, I storified it. Yeah. But you know, people could relate. You know, it was so it was like that kind of thing that sparked off. Oh yeah, I, I'm, I've also been there. It's that kind of thing, and 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 things resonated with people. So mm. it was, you know, those kind of things that I used to write. Yeah. It was just like you know sharing things about me, <laughs> not necessarily like necessarily, you know, giving advice, but it was just like talking about things around relationships. Yeah. Your first published work was The Polygamist in mm-hmm. 2012. Mm-hmm. But you've said that you have other unpublished manuscripts lying around and that you might be revisiting them in the future. I have revisited them. So all those Lovely. manuscripts I spoke about there was uh, a family affair, right. something I wrote right. in my 20s. Yes. Yeah. So it was already in existence before The Polygamist. Um, an angel's demise was also already in existence. It, it was then. It wasn't called that. It was called skeletons in the closet. Right. But the manuscript was already there. So it's like. So those are the books I always spoke about revisiting. So I have, right. And you have and, and talk yeah. to us. What is it like to to go back to work you wrote as a young woman? Now, as a slightly more mature, more knowledge of the world, when you when you first reread those old books, was it like, oh, actually, I was quite good, or was it? Oh my God, I didn't know anything. <laughs> it was, oh my God. <laughs> you know, and cause I used to wonder, like, you know, I mean, back in those days, when I used to get rejections, I would, I, you know, it would break my heart. But reading it now, you know, I understand why that work was rejected. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So it was like, oh my, and I'm glad it was rejected. It wasn't ready. So. And it was nice, you know, reworking. All How that. did you do that? What was the process? Did you start from scratch rewriting? No. The story, the story wasn't the problem. The storyline was fine. It was the writing, how it okay. was written. So I knew what, you know, it was just improve the writing. Okay. So there was absolutely nothing wrong with the stories and the story ideas. That wasn't an issue. So it, it's easier when you're starting because you just, you're building on, on something. You mm. already have a foundation. You know, you already got your what people refer to shitty first drop. <laughs> yes, exactly. So, so that's basically what I was picking up on, on from. Cause then I could, I can look at it, you know, with maturity and wisdom and experience and, and think, okay, this, this I can keep, this you can't sell, you know, so it's that kind of approach. And did you add to the story yes, and I add did. layers? Yes, I did. Yeah. Okay. So it's like you're saying you're building on something. So you already have a foundation. It's just building on it. 
Yeah. Gail, do you have any unpublished manuscripts lying around? Yes, I do, and it will remain so. And in fact, <laughs> it's been stolen now, so it's all all to the best. Oh, I had a laptop stolen, stolen. Um, with oh, an no. unsaved, unpublished, and worse, a current work in progress. Oh, I had a book oh. on that laptop that was 30,000 words old. Oh, no. Um, and and it wasn't to, saved to cloud? I, I wasn't doing it at that stage. Oh. I have to tell you, though, mm. It probably is the best thing that can happen to a writer because I rewrote it and I wrote it better. And I've heard about somebody who that's their method. They write, put aside, and then write it again. And I can see that it must be spectacular, but I'm definitely too lazy to ever do that again. (laughs) Now I save to the cloud. Now I am a worshipper at the shrine of the cloud. cloud. (laughs) No, I I mean, it it, it gets crazy because... Because there's some things that once you get down, you you can't rewrite again. You lose you lose it. So it's like some sentences you're like, wow. So for me, especially when I'm like on 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 the draft, you know, when you've got a manuscript to submit, I'm, I mean, I save like crazy. I'll be saving like three. <laughs> I email myself, mm. you know. Um, yeah, that's the difference between you and me. So you write beautiful sentences that you said to lose. I've, I've never written a sentence that I've gone, oh wow, afterwards in my life. I think that actually leads to one of the big things I want to talk to Sue about. You and I have had a lot of interesting conversations about the difference between commercial and literary fiction. Mm-hmm where you feel you fit on that spectrum. Mm-hmm. And we've also talked about, as a black writer, mm-hmm. getting pigeonholed as a literary writer. Mm-hmm. So a lot of stuff in that question. Talk to me. Yeah, so, you know, I've never actually, you know, envisaged myself or marketed myself as a literary fiction writer, and I've never wanted to be in, in that category. Mm-hmm. And if I think of all the writers that, you know, I sort of like benchmark myself to. Sweet Valley High. No, no, no. <laughs> like the writers Carrie like. Bradshaw. I admire. No, not even Carrie. Like Dorothy Kumson, right? Oh, yes. yes. That's, I would, that's where I see myself. I'm in that category, you know, okay. so I that's don't. kind of women's fiction, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. So I'm not really the literary ac- academic, but I, I end up getting pushed that side. And, mm. But that's, that's never where I've, I've like really positioned myself. So. And, and do you think it, because we've talked about this, do you think it's because you're a black writer and there's this feeling that black writers are always writing something very in-depth and important and, and therefore what you are writing must be very in-depth and important? I think, yeah, it's, I think as a, an African writer, you, you, you don't have a choice. You're supposed to be always, cha- you know, channeling profound stuff. It's like, because people will be saying, what's the point? You know, there's, and I, and, and we, so you are like, forced into this like category of you know you if you're not writing like Chinua Achebe it was you know you have to be writing that and I think that's so restrictive like we we haven't been allowed to go out and you know just write stuff that we want to write you know Mm. Although I am going to argue with those beautiful sentences, <laughs> you you do have a touch of the literary writer about you. I'm sorry, I'm sorry to pigeonhole you like that. <laughs> um, you used an interesting technique in your first novel, The Polygamist, mm-hmm. where there are these characters that we inhabit, the four wives. Mm-hmm. We get their first person perspective uh-huh. and we inhabit them and really get to know them from the inside. Uh-huh. And obviously we all have our favorites and yes. we all have our sense of, oh, I prefer this one to that one, etc. 
Did you have those preferences yourself? Did you enjoy inhabiting some of the characters more than the others? Were there some that you loved and some that you hated? No, I, I, I loved I loved all of them because it, mm-hmm. it was like role play acting, you know. Like, <laughs> <laughs> so for me, it was fun because, you know, I could be Essie yes. and, you know, Essie's just like ungovernable, you know. So it's kind of like, and, and the more ungovernable the character was, the more fun it was. Like mm-hmm. writing Lindani was lovely, right. you know, because I could be wild, you know, because she's just wild. So for me, um, I enjoyed, you know, it's just, just changing personas and it challenges me. You know, because then I have to think, okay, now we have to be back into Joyce. We have to be prim proper, yes. collected. And it's, it, it's, it's fun. I really enjoyed writing that book because I could switch, you know, so I, I really did enjoy that. And I think what I liked was because with a book like that, you have to get the characterization, you know, because so that mm. people know who you, who it is and not get confused because it's easy for people to get confused if the characters aren't, you know, standing out for them. Right, right. I'm always interested, and you've touched on it, over everything you've written. Mm-hmm. Do you have a favorite character? Do I don't. You, don't you? No, I don't. Nobody no. who is the most fun to write. They, they're always fun at, you know, at, at that point in time um, when I'm doing the book project because otherwise I would get rid of them. <laughs> if they're not fun, they yeah, go. You are so boring and fine. <laughs> what is the point? Like, like, why am I keeping you on this page? Yeah. So, um, I remember when in my, uh, in the original manuscript for Angel's Demise, Skeletons in the Closet, the, one of the characters dies whilst giving birth, and it happened in the first chapter. So, when I was rewriting it now, okay, I follow, she, she dies. But she used to bother me. So it was like, she was like, you can't kill me now. You have to keep me alive. (laughs) So I'm like, why do I have to keep you alive? And it was, it was this thing that went back and forth. And then I refer, okay, so I said, fine, okay, I'm going to keep you alive. And, you know, by keeping her alive, I, you know, I developed a totally new storyline that took me to a really wonderful place. So sometimes, you know, we kill characters too soon or we, you know, we don't realize the potential of them. So. You know, so I'm also open, you know, <laughs> yeah, open to <laughs> You're not going people. to kill off all the boring ones immediately. You might give no. them a chance, a chance to prove yeah. themselves. Yeah. Fair enough, fair yeah. enough. How was the polygamist received? Were people scandalized? Were they deeply absorbed? Did they have strong reactions to the situation that you set up in the different characters? I think it was a scandalous book when it came out mm. because I think there were very few books of that kind, especially centering black, you know, African women. Um, who owned their sexuality. So it was, it was kind of like scandalous, but people like really, it was like, but, but it's, I think it's a very popular book. I mean, it's still yeah. selling to, you know, today. Um, and people still, it resonates with a lot of people. People love it. So, yeah. And how does that compare to how Family Affair has been received? Because that also, I mean, there's quite a lot of sex in that book and there's quite, it's, it's could be seen as scandalous. I had a lovely time <laughs> reading it on holiday. Um, <laughs> how has that compared, those two books? So, so what I find, people who love the polygamist also love a family affair. So, so the, so my readers who were the polygamists, because sometimes you lose readers, sometimes you gain. Mm-hmm. So I found like with the gold diggers, I lost that some of that audience from the polygamist who who couldn't quite, you know, get into the gold diggers. So for me, it's I, I find readers who love the polygamists will love a family affair. Readers who love the gold diggers will love an angel's demise. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's like I have this two 
so my the, kids. It's so interesting you say that because I am going to make a confession. Mm-hmm. I have not read The Gold Diggers mm-hmm. and I have Angel's Demise <laughs> sitting next to my bed. And at the moment, I'm in a very, I'm not up for heavy reading. Yeah. And I've listened to you talk about Angel's Demise. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I desperately want to read it because I love your writing, mm-hmm. but I'm quite frightened of it. Yeah. Am I right to be frightened? Yeah. So, mm-hmm. yeah, you're right. So, unless you love The Gold Diggers, it's unlikely. Because the gold diggers also was too scared. Yeah, Everyone went, oh, this really shows you the, the reality of the immigrant experience. It's terrible. Not the book. The, yeah, the immigrant the, yeah. experience is terrible. And I was like, oh, I don't think I want to know how terrible everything is. Yeah, it's, it's a gritty book. It's 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 difficult. Um, it's yeah to read. So if you well, could, it's, it's incredibly gripping. That's what I found with the gold diggers. <laughs> that you you start reading it almost sort of peeking between your fingertips. <laughs> And and then it grips you and it gets you in and you mm. are totally absorbed, absorbed. in these characters mm. and their journey mm. and you can't put it down. Mm. So, Gail, if you're scared to read it, don't even start because it'll suck you in and won't let you go. <laughs> yeah, so that's – yeah, it's so true. So I find – yeah, I have that reader, the gold diggers, who would love the angels. There's, there's the same book. They both grip you as well. But they're not, they're not easy reads, whereas the other two are. You know, they're gripping, but they're easier reads. And what's the next one? I know you're not there yet, but I'm sure that it's percolating somewhere. Are we going no. light or heavy? No. It, it, it'll light, too. Can we have another it'll, light It'll one? probably be light because <laughs> I tend to, because I've done heavy, so I tend to also write like that. Okay, so I give my, myself a break. It'll probably be light um, because I've been contemplating. Um, sorry, so. You know, not even contemplate, I mean, under pressure to write the sequel, either for the polygamist or a family affair. So I might do one. I don't know which one I'll do, but yeah. That's very, does the idea of a sequel attract you? It hasn't. It, it hasn't before, <laughs> but I think it, it was interesting. We were having, you know, the president's book club. We were having that discussion with the family affair and something came up in that discussion that really gave me an idea of how I could actually do the sequel you know it was through that that con- I was like oh okay I hadn't thought of that so it was like okay so that might be the path to go up exciting yeah okay so we had a book called The Polygamist mm-hmm. and then we had a book called The Gold Diggers which had a cover of a woman on it <laughs> yes <laughs> did that set up an expectation that this was going to be a kind of a sugar baby, blessy kind of book, um, maybe another scandalous novel. You said you lost some readers. Mm-hmm. Did it kind of set up an expectation which is then subverted and did it cause annoyance and disappointment among readers? It did. Or did it earn you a whole lot of new readers? So I gained a whole lot of new readership, but I lost some as well. So like you're saying, some people were annoyed. I remember this woman was interviewing me on radio and she's like, you know, I read the gold design as I was like, where are the blessers? You know, I'm, like, I'm now on page 200. Where are the gold? That's big dark. <laughs> so, yeah, for some people it was like, hmm, no, not, yeah, this is not what, you know, I signed up for. So you'll, you know, you'll lose those readers, but I also gain readers. So it, it balances out. Yeah. Right. Mm. Yeah. Uh, you deal with some very heavy issues there. Mm. And you answer that question that I think a lot of people ask, unthinkingly why don't they just go home yes what are they doing here why don't Mm. they just go home yeah so you address that question of what home is actually like Like, mm. and how desperate you can be to escape it exactly and also the question of 
why don't they go back and fix what's wrong with with this place that they messed up in the Mm. first place, Mm -hmm. you know? And you you address that in a very real way and show how impossible and untenable that is as a single person, maybe a mother with a young child Mm -hmm. who's just looking to the future. Um, Did it earn you any enemies? Because this is a very sensitive topic. No, not that I know of. Mm-hmm. I've never, I don't think I ruffled any feathers. I didn't get any backlash from it at all. I, I mean, and I think an angel's demise kind of picks up from it nicely. Yes. Because we also, we're revisiting country and those issues again, because they right. come to the fore as well. So that's why I say those two books are actually, you know, they, they're like, you know, they go nicely together. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They complement each, each other. other. Yeah. Which touches on, on another issue for you as a writer in South Africa. Not only are you coming as a, a black woman writer with certain expectations, you're Zimbabwean mm-hmm. and we're in a it's very xenophobic society. Mm-hmm. How are you finding that's affecting how people receive your writing or once they're in your world, they forget about it? So I think when it comes to books, they, I, I don't think there's really like that xenophobic experience. People read widely. So people read already reading African writers um, mm-hmm. on the continent anyway. It's not, so it's not, it's not. A, and people, I think people who read aren't xenophobic. They tend to be open, <laughs> open-minded. Very interesting. Yeah. yeah. And so they wouldn't, you know, be, wouldn't come to, mm. to that table, to the table with that attitude anyway. So I thought, uh, Yeah. I also, I believe, and it's funny you mentioned Dorothy Coombson because because I have a whole theory about her writing and it touches on this, that your books can be a tool mm-hmm. to also, if you can if you can trick the xenophobe into reading it, mm-hmm. that maybe at the end of it, the xenophobia will be a little bit less. Yeah, because uh, I think if it was in schools, really, yeah, it, yeah, I mean, we'd, we'd censor out all the. <laughs> let's put that out to the universe. Get it into schools. Let's deal with the xenophobia problem by making Sunyati must read material. Yeah, but Sensitians has it. Do I they? Think one I was going to say, I'd be surprised if there's schools mm. that are not looking yeah, at those so, books, and also universities. Mm. They must be on reading lists somewhere. Yeah, so that's what I'm saying. It's 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 already happening. Oh, so good, that, you know, uh, I think there's something there to be said. And it, it, it's also enlightening, which is important for children. Because I'll tell you my secret. I recommend Dorothy Coombson to people who have a, that I can tell there's a deep racist <laughs> thing going on there. Because the thing with her books is you start reading and you don't realize the characters are black. Like, no. I, and I, I said the same. And deeply <laughs> invested in their lives and then you realize they're black. And I think it's the perfect learning experience for racist readers because now they're so invested and then they go, Oh, wait a minute. Maybe we actually are all the same. Yeah. You know, maybe we all have the same concerns and the same worries. And I think it's, so if I've ever, rec- well, I recommend her to everyone because she's great. Mm. But if I've like forced it into your hand and then maybe you must worry. <laughs> <laughs> and you're so right, Gail, because when I first read a, a Dorothy concert, I didn't know that the mm. characters were black. And it also made me, you know, like question my, like, how do I know characters are black in a book? You know? Yes. Why do I assume? Okay. You know, so, so it was quite, it was also like playing with my own mind. Um, and yeah, that was very interesting. Then I wondered maybe if it was because they said, you know, located and they're British blacks. Yes. And maybe British blacks are more, are, are the same as their white counterparts. So I don't know. I, I have quite noticed interesting. her newer books. Uh-huh. It comes up earlier and okay. it comes up stronger. Okay. Yeah. I think she yeah. is grappling more with the whole issue of, um, 
of diversity and, and being a black person in, in, a, in a white right. country, country, so to speak. I'm using inverted commas there for the listener. Um, <laughs> but we're not here to talk about Dorothy. We're here to talk about you. But well, one really- last thing about Dorothy Coombson. <laughs> I strongly suspect there was a conversation early on where her publisher said to her, we are dying to publish you, mm-hmm. but we want you to hide the fact that your characters are so. black. Yes, I think so. I think they did that. We that, like let's hook the readers in, but you know, just just kind of hide that black thing for a while. Don't make it too obvious. And I think they designed the covers in such a way because I've noticed that the her new covers yeah. make it clear that the characters are black. Yeah. So I think there was a little covert so racist conversation. conversation going. About it. I yeah. hope that we have her as a guest in South Africa one oh, day. Okay. And yeah. I hope we have a panel with Sue and Dorothy. <laughs> and that would be so delicious. I, I would love, yeah, I'd love for her to come because I think I think her books would actually be a hit here. A lot more people should be reading them, I think. They, yeah. they really are. But yeah. Okay, moving on from Dorothy Coombs. <laughs> okay, moving on to A Family Affair, which came out in 2020. Mm-hmm. There's a very interesting, I wouldn't call it a subplot, but it's a thread that goes through the whole book, which is the mega church mm-hmm. um, versus traditional society versus sort of Roman Catholicism, the more kind of author- mm-hmm. uh, more... Um, conventional face mm-hmm. of Christianity. Mm-hmm. Did you draw on personal experience for this or w- what was the inspiration for this plot line? So I think, I mean, I, so there is personal inspiration in the sense that I'm, you know, I was raised Roman Catholic mm-hmm. and there was a time because this book is located in Bulawayo. And so I'm writing about Bulawayo society. Uh, and I, you know, that's very, Blat- it's a blatant thing. It's, I'm not even trying to hide it. Mm. And so there was a movement. There was a shift, a huge shift when people then sh- moved from the traditional churches to the mega, you know, Pentecostal churches. And, and it was big in the 90s. Yeah. So that was very, yeah. So there was a very deliberate commentary. And I, why I did the church. So I was looking at a society that really has, is hinged on culture or tradition, whatever. Yeah. The church and patriarchy and those pillars really, you know, that those are the pillars that we grew up in. And it's, it can be very oppressive. Those three, that unholy trinity <laughs> put together. So, and that's the, the, you know, the whole premise of that, of that book. What I found fascinating as, as a fairly uneducated reader mm. in a way, I say uneducated about the Zimbabwe. And I know what everyone knows, but mm. I, I don't, I haven't dig- gone deep into it and in my head Zimbabwe is a poor country mm-hmm. and everybody's suffering terribly mm-hmm. and running around worrying about how they're going to survive mm-hmm. and you wrote about wealthy Zimbabwe mm-hmm. and I was fascinated by that was that a deliberate decision to, sh- to show us a different face of Zimbabwe yes definitely because you know it's the same in, in South Africa as well you have wealthy black Africans you know not everybody lives in Alexandra or deep yes. Sweetonia Township you have affluent blacks who travel, you know, who, who live, you know, lavish lives. And it's the same in Zimbabwe. It's the same in every society, actually. Mm. And I think if you start, I don't know if you ever watched the Real Housewives franchise. I mean, they've moved to Lagos and I'm Nairobi. very hard mm. not to. No, no, but. <laughs> <laughs> but then I think those, those shows really showcase. They, it's a social commentary for me in the sense mm. that you see that even in those countries, you know, there's always that the cream, the mm. elite, who live, you know, super luxurious lives. And so I, I also, so in my book, I also wanted to show that, mm. that, that that side of Zimbabwean society that is wealthy, that is affluent, you know. It was fascinating. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it, but I was quite 
thrown by what it, how I had to readjust my picture of Zimbabwe. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I also get commentary from even Zimbabweans themselves who say, we've always wondered how the other half lives. You know, it's always not, it was almost like voyeurism because we could, you know, go and peep <laughs> behind and the high walls, walls and the yeah. manicured gardens and yeah. so on, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, that book came out, I think, in the same year as Angela McCall mm-hmm. was critical but stable, stable. Okay. <laughs> which was also a counter-narrative mm-hmm. to the kind of um, poverty tourism mm-hmm. that some mm-hmm. African literature is. Um, and a common theme is that here is this glitzy exterior which is lovely to look at and fantasize about and to see how people live but behind closed doors everything isn't that rosy yes was that a deliberate choice of yours to sort of go behind the walls and show us what that you know that people have the same problems yes and and the thing is and and so that people don't feel bad because i feel like people always are doing like sort of like a pr exercise with their lives you know, everybody has problems. Mm. Like, and there are no perfect families. Mm. But there's always this thing of pro- trying to project perfection. People are obsessed with projecting perfection. And I don't know why that is. But every family has its flaws and foibles. And I think the sooner we accept that every family also has dysfunction, mm. we c- I think we'd sleep better at night instead mm. of trying to pretend that, you know, everything's rosy. What's behind the yeah. Instagram. And, <laughs> and yeah, let's, you know, and I think that's why people love that book because it's reading it and you're like, oh yes, this sounds like our family, and and it's that it's that that makes that book very popular. That, okay, okay, so our family's not as bad as we thought it was. It's yeah. like, and I think that's why people probably like reality TV because you're looking at other people's lives and thinking, okay, I thought I was messed up, but okay, I'm I'm actually okay. <laughs> so that, you know, actually, yeah, very fun. <laughs> yeah. So you've talked a little bit about. What's coming next? And you've talked about all the, as a child, all the voices in your head, all the characters. How do you know what is an idea worth following? Cause I'm sure like most of us who write a lot, mm. you have lots of ideas. Mm. How do you know which one has legs? I get a feeling in my hands. I actually get a tingle in my hands, hands when I've got okay. a good idea. What, what is it for you? I think for me, cause I always say I start writing in my head before I put it down on paper. So I start playing around with the story, the characters in my in in my head. I don't even put it on paper, mm. but it. I start to 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 craft it, and if it reaches a point where I can, I can no longer contain it in my head, mm-hmm. then I know okay, there, there's something here we can run with. But sometimes it just dies; it doesn't go anywhere. Mm. Yeah, mm. yeah. But I love that answer. Mm. There was a fascinating part in a family affair where you're talking about the family that have gathered for this wedding. Mm-hmm. And you talk about how the aunts and uncles have arrived mm-hmm. and how in, in Debele mm-hmm. there are distinct words for a particular type of aunt, the mm-hmm. aunt that's related to you through your mother's side, yes. the aunt that's related through your father's side. And there's one in Debele word for something that takes a whole sentence to explain in English. <laughs> yeah. Have you ever written in Indebele or ever wished that you could or been interested in pursuing that? I've never written in Indebele and I don't have enough vocabulary to. So I, I, I don't think I would do a good job of it. But, you know, I always say, let that not be a limitation. That people can translate. Mm, and right. I'm really open to people translating my books. And they it's could take that whole sentence and make it into one word. Right, yeah. <laughs> and so I think, so for me, it's not really a limitation. I think, cause now we have translation really gives your book legs. I mean, like the gold diggers has been translated into Arabic now. 
So right. it's available to that market, you know. Um, so I, I think it doesn't matter um, now. Even if I write in English, my mm-hmm. work can still be accessible mm-hmm. in other languages. Right, right, right. So when you were writing Angel's Demise, only I didn't know that was what you were writing, obviously. <laughs> you talked to me about how you, you said you were deliberately reading books written by white women. And I was very taken by that because I'd never <laughs> met anyone who had set out with that as a project before okay. and falling into the right category. Mm-hmm. I was very pleased. Um, and you told me that it, it was to write a white character, mm-hmm. um, which in Angel's Demise now. Mm-hmm. Did did you find that reading experience? Did it help you? Did, it did and how was writing that character? I had lots of white. So I had a, in Angels in Mind, I have the Williams family. Yes, um, and they're a white family who live on a farm. Is it Melanie who was the, the main character yes. you were researching? Yeah, right, right. yeah, <laughs> yeah. So it was trying to get that authentic voice of of her as you know, you know, a white woman of privilege, and so yeah. That's why I started on, I went on <laughs> gobbling up all these of books with, you know, who were predominantly white pro- female protagonists of a certain age. Yeah. So it did help. It really did help. It's, it's very interesting. Um, and I think it's, it's, it's such a message to everyone ab- about reading widely. Mm. In it, before you put, because I think as white writers, we're quite aware of be very careful where you go with writing a black voice. Mm-hmm. And it for me was so interesting that it it works both ways. Actually, writing ways. somebody else's voice mm. is be very careful how you do that. I think that's a good lesson. Yeah, and I think so. When I asked people, so what did you think and about the Williams? They were like, oh, "Wow, you, you really got it!" <laughs> like, and and the same with the the husband, her husband, Paul. Yeah, his voice. Yeah, oh, that, that <laughs> voice have, of the I kind have of a husband called Paul. No, so. no, it, it, it's it's an older voice. It's a kind of seventies and eighties white Africana <laughs> farmer voice <laughs> that just oh, it it hit me deep down yeah. in a very uncomfortable oh, way to see his voice there on the page. So people would ask me like, how could you write? You wrote him so well, but how did you manage? To? And I'm saying it's the same thing. You know, you research. You also live. I mean, we we live with with you know, worked with white men. I've worked with, you know, the white, white male yeah, voice is quite a loud one. <laughs> <laughs> How can you, you know, so it's, I, you know, so it wasn't <gasps> difficult. So, but you need to do that research. So I, I always say, cause I mean, people will be like, you, you, if you're black, you have no right, to, you know, to write white characters. I'm like, we, we creatives. I don't think we should start limiting ourselves, but I think if you're going to do it, do it well, research it. Do you it, think people do say that? Do people no, they say do. If you're black, you can't write white characters? I know that if you're white, you told you can't write black characters. I, I don't. No, no, it's, it's more it's for a, white people. I, I agree. Yes. White writers. Mm. But I'm just saying we shouldn't put those limitations because we are, we are creatives. Yes. And your stories will, are not, not necessarily always going to be politically correct. And they're also not going to be populated by one race. So I think we should allow, you know, writers that license to. So have you found that this, you've talked about the political correctness mm-hmm. and, and it definitely there is a move to books being more politically yes. correct. Look what's happening. Mm-hmm. The debate about the Roald Dahl oh, books yes. at the moment. Mm-hmm. And I saw the other day James Bond is mm-hmm. being rewritten mm-hmm. to be more politically correct. Are you finding as a writer that when you come to the page, that's in your head more than no. it used to be. No. I think we need to stop doing that, actually, because we writing must reflect the period. Mm. It's like maybe, can you imagine taking Jane Austen and trying to make it politically correct? Mm, mm, it mm. just doesn't. You're killing the essence of the book. Mm. 
and for me, I think it's important because I see myself as a social anthropologist of, of, a, of a kind that should people come 20 years from now and read my books, they should be able to understand the world we were living in and the norms and laws of that time. Right. I mean, I remember someone tried to give me flack for using the word, was a prostitute in the gold diggers. Right. And I'm, I said, I, I defended that. I said, that's what they, it was called at that right. time. Right. No so one was saying sex, sex worker, worker at the yeah. time. So let's not try and make things poli- when they're not. Be truthful to the era that you're writing. So my books are not necessarily set now. Yes. But, but they must always reflect that time period. It must, mm. it must be truthful to that, that era. Mm. Sue, I consider you a Twitter superstar. (laughs) (laughs) And it's very interested to me. It's interesting to me how you have crafted that space for yourself. Mm -hmm. And it seems as though it goes back to that column that you used to write. Mm -hmm. Um, You put issues out there on Twitter and you immediately get a ton of engagement. (laughs) Like, everybody's dream idea of how much (laughs) engagement that they would want is what you are actually getting. Mm -hmm. And I'm I'm sure you're doing it intentionally, but it seems to me to be so sincere and the way you engage with the people who respond is so sincere Mm -hmm. that I suspect that is the secret of your success. Possibly, because I think I wouldn't have grown the following. Right. Because okay, I, I mean, I started like every other person. I mean, I remember I joined Twitter probably 2012. Right. I didn't have any followers. Yeah. You know? And so you started from zero like yeah. everybody else. And, you know, I just, just, but, you know, started, you know, slowly. I was, I was frightened of Twitter in the beginning. I won't lie. Um, <laughs> and, and I think there was one or two incidents. I think some, I said something and someone, you know, came back at me. They were quite, you know, Grazing and, you know, the response was quite, you know, vicious. And yeah. I was like, oh, okay, maybe I'm, I shouldn't be on this platform. But then I sort of stayed on and sort of observed. And then I kind of, you know, sort of grew a thick skin over the years mm. as well, you know, to say not take things personally. And, you know, people on Twitter, some people are angry, some, you know, some mm. are, you know, mm. so mm. you also, it's like almost like you're going to a room full of people. You can't see their faces, but, you know, they're going to say whatever they want to say. Mm. Um, yeah, so I think, and I think then I started getting bolder, even, you know, I wasn't afraid. And I think because writing as well is is my forte. So I think that's why I was able to really articulate myself and, you know, I could in, in, engage. But then I think it also became very vicious as well as I, as I grew. People then start to say, okay, why is she popular? You know, there's always that as well. Yeah. And so I, then I saw the other side, you know, like how vicious it can really, mm. when, you know, people start trolling you and mm. with it. It can really get very nasty, and then people started burning my books. There was burning a time, your books. Yeah, burning your books. Yeah. I missed that one. My goodness. Yeah, there was a time when I got trolled, and someone said, "You know, your writing is so mediocre. I don't know how you've even managed to get so far." But you know, but for me, that was also a wake-up call that you know, there's a positive of Twitter, and yes. then it can get very ugly as well. So yeah, so and then you know, there were people. I there were comments like, "You know, I'm going to burn her books." She doesn't. Even, so there were things like that. It can get very ugly. So I, as I, long as you paid for them before, go on. <laughs> so yeah, so I then you know I think that really for me was like okay, um, I need to be very cautious, you know, because mm. not everybody's energy on. That. So I think I then started you know becoming more measured even in what I said, and I think also the world of Twitter has changed in the sense that you can't 
you have to be careful what you say, mm. you know. And our world has changed, and everything can be miscrewed, and things mm. deteriorate fast. So I'm very careful now. Even now, I don't tweet as much as I used to. I also don't have as much time as I used to. But yeah, I'm also very measured, and I I think I'm very careful about what I say. I must average the point out only share an opinion <laughs> if if it is something I'm willing to that I believe in so strongly okay. that I don't mind the trolling. <laughs> so like I was quite outspoken about vaccines um and the need for them and got trolled badly. <laughs> but 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 if you really but believe in what it, you're yes. saying then yeah. then I think because you're a big fish on Twitter, people come for you because it's going to get more eyes on them. Yes, true. They know if, if they come after you, they're going to get more attention and maybe somebody will check out their profile to see who's saying this crazy thing. Yeah. So who's you become a target. To take, take on, on Sue. Sue. Yeah, it's, it's like that. It's, it's that world and every dog has its day on Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> and I kind of, you know, I, I always say like, I remember when I got told and I tended, I, not only did I trend in, in Johannesburg, I trended in the US. So it's like the oh, whole wow. day. So when the American Twitter opened and saw these tweets, they were like, they were on to me. Mm. <laughs> but I think, you know, but it passed. I think after that, I was like, I realized, you know, the thing with Twitter is you'll trend today. Yes. Tomorrow, two days, people have forgotten, yes. they moved on. And Completely. so I knew like, uh, it's not a thing. So now even when someone is being trolled left, right and center, I say to them, don't stress. You know, Wait two days. Yeah, it's gonna, yeah. It's it'll blow over, and yeah. and people move on because there's always there's always something people want to be onto one day. And hundred it, percent. Yeah. It's like a wheel. Do you have thoughts about the direction that Twitter's going in since Elon Musk took over? Do you see the platform as essentially dying, or is it carrying on much the same? I, you know, I don't know. For me, I feel like we've outgrown it. Right. It's it's not the Twitter that it used mm. to be. So, you know, and I kind of feel like, well, for me, I'm more, now I'm more keen on growing my Instagram. Okay. Because I, I believe that's, it's more reflective of people who actually read me. Right. So a lot of my followers on Twitter have probably some of a great deal. I could say 90% of them have never even read my books. But with my Instagram account, people who follow me have read my books. They're not just following me. And I, book talk? Are you not brave? So yeah. So I think you know, for me, that I really like that, and I like how it's grown organically, and in the sense that it's people who do read me. So I, I feel I enjoy the engagement there more. You know, and, and it's it's and my profile is really about my book. So I, I like I think I like that Instagram more now. I'm I'm gravitating it towards. Yeah, towards I know what it. I'm doing straight after this. Following <laughs> Sue on Instagram, I think I already follow Sue on Instagram. <laughs> so I'm ahead of the curve I'll there. I'll check while, while you ask our our end question. I'm going to check what if I follow Sue on Instagram <laughs> or not. <laughs> okay, um, Sue. We always like to ask our guests. What have you been reading or listening to or watching this week that has resonated with you or that you felt was a big failure? Just that, that struck you in any way. Okay. So, so now that I'm back on TV. Okay. So I'm watching a lot of television <laughs> reference material as well. So apart of, apart from the housewives, <laughs> so I've been watching a lot of that to unwind. Um, because I sometimes I just want to watch crazy TV because I don't want to think too much. Yeah. It's like I'm not thinking like, okay, how was the scene re- written? Because when I'm watching serious TV, that's what I'm thinking. I'm thinking of the script. But sometimes I just want to watch TV and not mm. overthink things. So 
I, I've been watching my housewives, the franchises. I enjoy that. It makes me laugh. It's a nice way to unwind after a busy week or day. So the serious stuff that I've watched, um, I'd recommend is Dam. I don't know if anyone has seen it. It's on Showmax. How do you spell that? Dam. D A M. Yeah. D A M. Yeah. Okay. Dam. Okay. D A M. Yeah. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> yeah, with me, you never, because you know, my books with so much swearing. So <laughs> that series is very, I, I really highly recommend it. And I also watched Behind the Eyes. It's a British series. It's not on Netflix. Right, right, right. Highly yes, I've recommend seen that. It. It's, it's actually brilliant. Yeah. I would okay. recommend that to watch. What's that all about? Behind your eyes. I don't know how to say without giving it away, but <laughs> the British, you know, I am very biased when it comes to the British. I think they're brilliant filmmakers. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's also something writers could learn um, as well in terms of the nuance and how you don't know who's who in the zoo until, you know, <laughs> they filmmaking is not, it's not blatant like the Americans where, you know, oh, this is the antagonist, this is the protagonist from, from the get go. Oh, right. You know, they, uh, they they know how to build that tension line, the suspense. Yes. Which you know, which is good. Also, when you're a writer, you need to be able to do that uh, to sustain. You know, that's how novels become gripping. The main character in this film is a single parent. I think that's also why I resonated with her. Um, and she meets this man in a bar one night, and, and it's always it's also that whole thing about connections. And I think for me, the the fascinating thread with that film is, you know, beyond what we see. You know, there's also life happening behind mm. the scenes, and it's got that layers. You know, the what they call magical realism now, but it's right. not really magical realism. You know, the spiritual world. Um, yeah. And then I believe that's alive. So beyond, we have our physical world and the spiritual world. So I think that's why I like that. And I liked how they in the interpretation is is stunning, and how they showed it in the film. Sounds, so please watch it. Be- sounds fascinating. Yeah, behind your eyes. What am I reading? Two books: The World of History, the new book by Simon Seabag Montefiore. I'm a oh, history right. buff. Yes, yes. I was. Yes. I was also a history buff in school. There's something you didn't. I didn't tell you. <laughs> I used to be the top student for history in school. Okay, school. Oh, cool. I would, you know, I would do badly. In others. I wouldn't fail, but I'd do badly. But I'd get the prize for history. I just loved. I used to gobble up history a lot. And we did a lot of European history. But I he's, believe he's actually speaking at the Jewish yes, Literary Festival. He's, he's in coming. South Africa or coming to South Africa. Yes. Yeah, so coming. I'll be interviewing him at Gibbs. We're having a... Um, new, yeah. So Brilliant. So, yeah, I'll be in conversation with him. So I'm reading... It's a thick book. It's like a thousand pages. But it's like, it's you know, it's quite voluminous. But it's not... It's it's. I like the way he writes the history as well. It, it's not academic. So I'm also reading chunks of that and I'm also reading Quality of Mercy um, yes. by Spio Glorian yes. right yes yes, yes, yeah, yes. so um, I'm loving it as well I'm in I'm in there I haven't read her yet and oh, everyone you. loves her and I have to <laughs> I have to get I have to get myself reading her yeah no it's, it's stunning so it's for me I guess also because she's a Vlaigo and so the nostalgia that she mm. stirs so when I read her books so I'm in, I'm enjoying it. She was actually, we were in the same high school. She was a, a year ahead of me. So. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. What a high school. Yeah. <laughs> so it's also, also quite interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's, so those are the books that I'm, I'm reading now that I'm busy. Great with. recommendations. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, Sue, thank you so much for your time. We want everybody to buy and read your books. The latest is An Angel's Demise, but I believe they are all still in print and still yes. available in the bookstores. Yeah, so ask for them by name. Mm-hmm. 
And thanks again for your time and have a good week. It was awesome. Thank you. (laughs) Well, Gail, I loved everything that Sue had to say. I found her so interesting. And I was especially fascinated by the fact that she's not afraid to alienate her readers. Like she will write A type of book and then at the next book switch to B type of book and then back to A type of book again. And she knows she's going to lose some readers along the way, but she also knows she's going to gain some readers. And she's sort of broadened her reading base in that way, which I find quite fearless and quite admirable. Fiona, I'm fascinated that you find this fearless because you write in so many different genres and you also you have this wide reading base some are your literary readers some are your your fantasy readers so I think you're admiring something that's admirable about yourself (laughs) I don't know if I've ever done anything as dramatic as gone from something really quite fun and light and enjoyable to quite hectic and dark and then back again Says the woman who literally bought out a cozy witch series around the same time as Lacuna, which is a very serious, um, quite heavy, but not so heavy. I couldn't read it type of read. So, so really you, you're admiring yourself there. I was also fascinated to do with that how she doesn't let the political correctness weigh her down. Yeah, it's just not something that she's allowing to burden her at all. And I think there's a lesson there for all of us. Absolutely. Uh, what about her story did you find interesting? So it, it's more something that that brought a personal recollection for me that she talked about her parents not accepting her writing. And she talked about it because of the type of people they were and because of the type of expectations they had. And I think a lot of people who whose parents resist them becoming full-time writers think it's because their parents aren't creative people. Yes. My father was an artist. He was a full-time artist. He absolutely had no interest in doing anything else, despite the fact that it meant that we were very poor as a result. He was not going to do a full-time job that was boring. He was going to be an artist. But when I said to him, I'd like to write books, he went, oh, you're going to have to edit them. You've got to, you know, there were no laptops at the time. You're going to have to retype them. It's very, very hard work. I don't know if you should do that. And I was like, oh, yeah, that sounds like terribly hard work. I'm going to become a lawyer instead. Um, So I think, I don't think creative parents necessarily encourage creative children and maybe because they know how hard the life is and and how hard it is to be a full-time creative person. So I found that very interesting. Yeah, I mean, I've I've got a child who at one point told me that she's very interested in writing and I, I couldn't steer her away <laughs> fast enough. <laughs> I mean, I'd like her to pursue it, but I did say to her, you're going to have to get a day job. Yeah. So give some serious thought to what that day job could be. And so then she went, okay, acting. And I was like, no, <laughs> no, I meant no. A real think day again, job. a real day job, please, darling. <laughs> you can be a doctor or a lawyer. Yes, no, or an engineer if we're really going to break out here. <laughs> Fiona, what is your lesson this week for our listeners? Well, I was interested in what Sue said about her nine to three schedule of sitting down every day once she's dropped her son off at school and setting expectations for herself. Mm. It's kind of turning your writing into a day job, Mm. just putting your bum on the seat, getting the words out, the 2000 words or whatever, which is a, a remarkable daily 
productivity mm. rate, if that's what she is meeting, just making those expectations and meeting them and treating it seriously like a job. I think that there are lessons to be learned there. Absolutely. I'm not waiting for the muse. The muse is dead. I think that was one of the, the titles for this podcast that we considered. And <laughs> um, for me, the thing that she said that that really triggered for me what I think is an important piece of advice is she has successfully gone back to early books that she wrote and she's now fixed up and turned into successful books. But I think that what goes wrong often for new writers is they write one book and it's not successful. They don't manage to find a publisher. And then they go back and they fiddle with it again and they fiddle with it again and mm. they rewrite it again. And send it out again. Send it out and again. Get the same get rejections. Yeah. Sometimes your first book, it certainly was for me. I think it was for you. Your first book is a learning exercise. Yeah. And your first book is not the book that's going to get published. When you finish your first book and you don't get it published, write your second book. Because yes. maybe your second book is the magical one. And when you send a book out, you can't expect a response before mm. about three months at the earliest. So use those three months not to sort of fret and wring your hands and worry. Start the next book. Absolutely. And then if you are rejected, you're excited about a new book already. And if you're not rejected, well, then you've got a little bit of balancing to do. But that's very doable. Well, I think that's a great note to end on. Thanks to Sue Nyati for her time. And thanks as always, Gail. Thank you, Fiona. You've been listening to another production from Solid Gold Podcasts.